do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we're in verses 1 to 7. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll know that we started this new series sort of working through the five solas of the Reformation, Uh, really these sort of five principles that marked uh, the Protestant conviction as they separated from the Roman Catholic Church around 500 years ago. And we're going to be spending really all of our summer walking through this. You'll, we'll be talking about it here on Thursday nights, then we'll be talking about it in our small groups on uh, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, depending on which one you attend. And last week, as we kind of started this series, there's a couple things I said that I think probably bear repeating, because there's a sense in which there's probably some misunderstandings that might come to your mind when I say that this is what we're studying, and I just want to debunk those uh, consistently, lest you maybe weren't here last week. So, so the first thing that, that you might think when you hear that we're going to be studying uh, essentially the, the differences between Protestants and, and Catholics is, is you very well might think that we're doing this series because we must really hate Catholics. And that is just absolutely the furthest thing from the truth that, that I can possibly imagine. Um, there, I have a, a great deal of respect for the Roman Catholic tradition. I may disappoint some of you to let you know that like three of the five books on my bookstand right now are written by Roman Catholics and not ordinary Roman Catholics, popes, super Catholics. Um, I have a deep appreciation for, for the, the Roman Catholic tradition, but, but I also want to acknowledge that, that we do have some differences uh, but this is not, this is not meant to, to be sort of a combative or argumentative series. Rather, really what, what we want to do is spend the next couple weeks uh, seeing the beauty of our home country, if you will, seeing some of the riches of, of the Protestant tradition and how it might shape and inform us as we approach Christ and, and attempt to live the Christian life. Uh, and, and I realize that there's another thing that warrants maybe a little bit of an explanation. Some of you are sitting in here and you've maybe read the solas off our back wall and you realize that they're in Latin, they're not in English, and you're thinking the most miserable thing that I could imagine is sitting around for five weeks and talking about old Latin phrases from dead people. Uh, this just sounds like sort of an exercise in talking about big issues for the sake of talking about big issues. This is the sort of thing where we learn Latin phrases so we can impress our friends at Starbucks with our knowledge of old dead theologians. Uh, that is decidedly not what I'm after in this series. My desire is not to sit here and, um, and just sort of pontificate about high-minded issues w- with no bearing on the real world. I really do think, the more I've studied for this series, that the stuff we're talking about here, it's not just... Uh, ideas to be sort of grasped, but it's, it's truths to be lived out. It's, it's things that, that will affect the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to uh, the people in our church, in our life group, in our small group, in our college classrooms. These things affect the way that we live. Last week, we, we began by talking about sola scriptura. And just as a reminder, sola scriptura is this conviction. When we say we believe this, what we're saying is that the Bible alone, because it is the inerrant and infallible word of God, is the church's final authority. That is the conviction of sola scriptura. You should have talked about this in your small groups this week, and I hope one of the things that came out as you discussed this uh, is that when we say the Bible is the final authority, we're not saying the Bible is the only authority. That's actually kind of a ridiculous statement to make. Uh, Because in the Christian life, there's all sorts of different sources of authority. You've got pastors, you've got uh, elders, you have the church that has some measure of authority in the Christian life. You've got theologians who are smarter than all of us, who we should probably listen to and not say you don't have any authority here. You've got mentors, people who disciple you. There's all these different sorts of authority that we experience in the Christian life. But what we're saying is that all of these are 
lesser to Scripture. They're under the Scriptures rather than standing over them. One of the other things that's important about our definition here is that we say that the Bible is the church's final authority. There's a common phrase, and I don't mean to be flippant or whatever because I know what's meant by this, but we tend to say things like the Bible is God's love letter to you. Has anybody heard this before, or do I just run in really weird circles where things like that get thrown out? Okay, maybe it's me. There, there's something good that's meant by that, but, but what's really important to recognize is the Bible is not just God's love letter to you, right? It's God's word to us. Uh, the Bible's not just given to you so you can sit under a tree by yourself with your favorite Hillsong record and figure out what it means for yourself, but it's God's gift to the church, And so this is one of the things that we said is sola scriptura is not solo scriptura. It's not you by yourself, but it's us together as the people of God reading scripture in the community of the church. And that's profoundly important. Uh, C.S. Lewis is one of the great uh, sort of theologians and thinkers of the uh, the last hundred years. And uh, one of the things that C.S. Lewis wrote that got him in a little bit of trouble was this book called The Screwtape Letters. And it was written, it's fictional, but it's written from the perspective of an elder demon, and he's writing to a younger demon who's been assigned to a human being, and his job is you need to somehow get this guy to end up in hell. So they refer to the human being as the patient throughout the whole book, and when he published it, he didn't publish it with any qualifications, so people had read Mere Christianity and picked up this book and found all this like very evil advice about how to ruin people's souls, and they all freaked out and were like, what happened to C.S. Lewis? And so he had to publish like an apology afterwards and go, no, 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 this is, this is a metaphor. Um, but there's a point where the, the elder demon is writing to the younger demon, and, and the, the patient, if you will, has become a Christian. And so the elder demon says to the younger demon, here's, here's how we can sort of uh, derail this. Get him to focus on the church. And, and then he, he catches himself and he says, I, I don't mean to focus on the church as we see it that stretches throughout space and throughout time, uh, that is triumphant and terrible as an army with banners. No, 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 I I want you to get him to focus on the smallest, most myopic portion of the church that he can see. Get get him to focus on the lady who sits in the pew behind him who has squeaky boots that just annoy him as she comes in after like a rainy day in London. Get him to focus on, on the man who stands next to him who sings off key during the hymns. Get him to focus on the lady across the aisle who just has a really obnoxious personality. Get him to focus on all of these little fragments of the church. Don't get him to focus on the grand narrative of the church. The problem is many of us have that if I can call it this, that demonic view of the church that Lewis describes. We think of the church as just the people in this room. We think of the church as just the people in our particular denomination or a sort of theological tribe. We think of the church as maybe all the Christians who are alive right now. But we don't see the church as the Bible sees the church, which is all people who have been marked by the blood of Jesus throughout time and space. And that's important for us because when I say we read the Bible in the church, We don't just privilege the people who are alive. Uh, I'll tell you that whenever I do a a series, I'm going through a portion of Scripture, especially when I'm preaching through a book of the Bible, one of the things I always buy is called the Ancient Christian Commentary. And it's just a whole bunch of dead people and what they said about the passages that I'm about to preach. And so this, this is something else that's important for us when we study the Scriptures, is that we read them in the context of the church. But that kind of brings us to topic for tonight. Uh, The church itself, what is it? Where does it come from? How is it created? And and the historic answer for us 
is that the church is created by grace alone. Sola gratia. What we mean when we say sola gratia is this, that it's only by and through the grace of God that sinners are saved and sustained. The church is created and preserved. But if we're going to spend tonight talking about grace, I think there's probably some work that we need to do. Um, because grace is the sort of word that Christians love to use because it sounds pretty and it makes for great like hand lettering on note cards. And it, it's sort of this pretty little phrase that we throw around and it, and it has lost some of its weight. Maybe I'm the only person who gets frustrated with sort of Christian cliches getting thrown around and phrases being used to the point that they don't mean anything anymore. Uh, here's maybe an example of this. Um, I've got a lot of friends who've, who've tried out churches over the years. Uh, and I'll ask them, hey, so what do you think about this church? And sometimes I get positive responses. Other times I get responses like, you know, it was cool, but I just didn't really feel like it was authentic. Well, nobody wants to be inauthentic. That's like the greatest crime imaginable. Uh, and so I was like, well, okay, cool. So what, what was inauthentic about it? Man, I, I went for a couple weeks and I sat in the back and nobody talked to me. And so I say to myself, my, my cynical self says, okay, so the way I understand authenticity is that you, you're honest about your feelings, that, that you don't do things that you don't want to do, that you're true to yourself, if you will, and maybe none of these people wanted to talk to you. And so the most authentic thing they could have done was not talk to you. Um, so maybe, actually, they would be really inauthentic if they said what's up to you, but the fact that they gave you the cold shoulder was actually proof that this is the most authentic church of all time. Uh, but that's not what they mean when they say authentic, right? When, when they say authentic, what they mean is more of like a warm and welcoming and inviting community of people who interact with them and, and embrace them. And my point being, that word gets thrown around so much that it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. And I fear that we might be in a similar position with grace. We've used it so cheaply that we no longer see how costly it is. We no longer see the weight of saying that we're saved by grace alone. Carl Truman puts it like this. When he describes grace, he says, Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. Biblical grace, then, is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. Grace is not the cheap stuff of wall plaques. It is a costly thing, and yet so many of us are underwhelmed by it. We don't, we don't find it weighty. We don't find it significant. We're not uh, compelled by it. We're not brought to our knees in awe and in reverence at the concept of grace because we've made it so cheap by using that word and applying it to things that it doesn't really apply to. In the 50s, there was an Episcopal priest who also happened to be a professional chef which is the weirdest combination I can imagine. Uh, but he, he wrote this cookbook called The Supper of the Lamb. And it's, it's a really interesting approach to theology because he opens with this recipe. And he says, here's how you cook lamb for 32 people, which is a lot of lamb. Uh, and then it, he spends the rest of the book, it's like 250 pages, just explaining each chapter on a process of how to prepare the lamb. And, and he ends up in each chapter coming to some sort of a profound theological point as he explains to you how to cut the onions. Like it's, it's mind-blowing, it'll make you cry, you'll laugh, you'll, you'll repent of your sins, it'll be incredible. Uh, and so one of the things that he says at, at the beginning of this book is he's just talking about beauty in general, in the world. And he says, our response to loveliness is not always delight. Far more often than it should be, our response is boredom. 
That's not only odd, he says, that's tragic. But his words could just as easily apply to grace. Our response is not delight, delight, it's not awe, it's not reverence, it's, huh, yeah, grace. And that, that's a tragedy that I hope tonight we can remedy as we come to the scriptures. As, as I said, we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jason, who, who's leading us in prayer this evening and lead us in communion a little bit later, uh, preached through the first chapter or two of the book of Ephesians. He might have mentioned this, but it's worth repeating. Ephesians 1 and 2 forms the longest sentence in the New Testament. Like all the handy-dandy chapters and verses and punctuation marks that you've got in your Bible, none of it was there when Paul wrote. So he would absolutely fail any grammar test, any English test. He just spits it out for about 100 lines. And it's, it's almost as if Paul is so overwhelmed by what God has done to save us, what he saved us from, what he saved us to, that, that his pen can't keep up with his mind. And so he's like, if I stop to punctuate any of this, I'm going to lose it. So we're just going to go. And, and I tell you that because there's a lot of context that we have no time to walk through tonight. So if you, if you really want to get a sense of what's going on in Ephesians, I encourage you to read Ephesians 1 and 2 in one sitting, because it is one sentence. It is Paul uh, word vomiting, the, the truths of the gospel. But as he, as he reflects on what God has done to save us, what he saved us from, he, he comes to our text for the evening, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The, the first word of our text is, is a harsh one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But it's important to let the harsh word do its work because this, this opening line from Paul, you were dead, it, it, it salts the wound which the grace of God is meant to bind. You have to hear this word, you were dead, before you can understand or even begin to comprehend the grace of God. Uh, one of the things that I love about my office is, is that it's, it's not quite like the Google offices. We don't have foosball tables and stuff like that. Uh, but it's a little bit more of an open floor plan. So like I share an office with Corey uh, and then the doors are always open so I can always hear what Shane and what Brian and what Sharon are doing and uh, there's always people walking in and out which may be why I never get anything done in my office. Uh, but it also makes for really communal spiritual work. Um, and so what tends to happen is when I'm really stumped on something which is every 20 or 30 minutes, I sort of wheel my cart out into the middle of the offices and I go, I don't get this, what do you guys think? And I just... Listen to Shane's input, Corey's input, Sharon's input, Brian's input, Francis's input. I, I just listen to what people have to say. And so I was having a conversation with um, Shane about what we're talking about, the, the concept of grace in this passage. Uh, and I said, what do you think? Like, Paul has this really harsh word at the beginning, you're dead in your sins. 
What do you think about that, Shane? And Shane said, it reminds me of the exact opposite of this song that's on the radio right now. And I said, oh, do tell. Uh, because I don't really listen to the radio uh, that much. Uh, and come to find out, it's a song on country radio, so it's doubly unlikely that I'll ever hear it. Uh, but he says, yeah, check this out. And so he, he pulls up um, on YouTube a song by Luke Bryan uh, called People Are Mostly Good. So uh, it doesn't sound like, or most, I don't mostly good. Did I get it wrong? Is it people are mostly good? Most people are good. It's all heresy. Um, <laughs> but he says, it's, it's the song, most, most people are good. And so listen, um, I'm not a country guy. Like, I really like Johnny Cash. Uh, the, the guy, the Zac Brown band fellow, pretty good. He read some good songs. Generally speaking, I don't, I don't love country. I'm sure this is a great song if you do love country. But, but as, I was, as I was listening to it, this uh, most people are good, the only thing that I could think about is like, this makes for a really catchy song, but that statement is, especially now at our point in human history, the most demonstrably untrue thing that I've ever heard. Like, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, more people were murdered and exterminated in the 20th century than in any other period in human history combined. You have 230 million people who were exterminated or massacred or starved through plague and famine in the last 100 years. Christians are, are, are so often accused of being out of touch with the way that the world is. We seem so desperately out of accord with things. But, but riddle me this, what sounds more out of touch with the world in the face of nuclear war, in the face of gas chambers, in the face of sex trafficking, in the face of racism? What sounds more out of touch? People are mostly good. Most people are good or you are dead in your trespasses. What makes more sense of the world that we live in right now? Most people are good. Sure, 230 million people murdered in the last 100 years. Yeah, we're mostly good. I'm sorry, get off your dirt road and your pickup truck and see what's going on. <laughs> this, is, this is not the world that we live in. No shade on Luke Bryant. I'm sure he's awesome. <laughs> Paul wants us to hear this. You're not a, a decent person that needs to be made better. You're a dead person that needs to be made alive. But he goes on. He says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, this phrase, he says, uh, that we were dead in our trespasses in which we once walked, following the course of this world. The literal Greek here is following the course of this age. He doesn't say world in the little Greek. It's not cosmos. It's, it's another word for this sort of epoch of human history. And Paul will do this again and again in the scriptures. He'll sort of uh, pit this age in which we live against the age to come when Christ rules and reigns and returns. So my, my grandma is in her 90s now, and Yaya is alive and kicking and doing well. Uh, but she has sort of reached uh, the point where she, she needs a little bit of help being um, cared for. And so in the last year or so, we had to begin the process of moving her out of where she had been living for an, uh, decades and, and move her into a place where she could get a little bit more attention and care. Uh, and part of this process uh, required us to go through a lot of stuff. Like, I, I don't know if you've had to move recently, but it's astounding how many things you accumulate in such a small period of time. 
Like I dread the moment when I have to leave my termite-infested apartment in Seminole Heights uh, because I will have to find everything in the apartment and somehow organize it and move it to another one. So imagine 30 years of being in the same place. But, but what was interesting is there was a lot of stuff that, that my grandma kept that, that there was no need to keep, things that were broken, um, things that were uh, clothing that had, that had holes in it that she had just patch up and would patch up again and again. Um, and it's not because she was a hoarder. Like, there, there was nothing, like, weird or, or bizarre about it. But one of the things that uh, we reflected on is that she was born right after uh, the Great Depression. She lived through World War II, where scarcity was sort of the norm, um, where you don't just throw things away because they're broken. You try and figure out a way to fix it. Like, you, you don't just get rid of your clothes because there's a hole in it. You sew a patch onto your clothes. You, you don't just throw away the sewing machine because it doesn't work anymore. You hold on to it because who knows if you're going to find another one, right? This is, this is the spirit of the age in which she grew up. And these were patterns that she carried with her her whole life. You don't just throw things away. You don't just get rid of them. You wait and you try and fix them. But what happened is she began to live out of step with the age in which she found herself and in step with a different age. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, like why is it that, that Christian ethics, uh, Christian views of marriage and gender and sexuality and, and friendship and Christian understandings of sin and repentance, why is it that it, so, it feels so out of touch with the world in which we live? The answer is because it is out of touch with the world in which we live. Christians are not living in accordance with the age in which we find ourselves. We're not living in accordance with the way that things are, but with the way that things will be. That we're no longer walking in step with this age, but we're looking ahead to how things will be when God makes them new. And now, in the middle of this evil age, we live in light of how things will finally be. But Paul says it wasn't always that way. There's a time for each and every one of us where we were dead in our sins and we were walking and following the course of this age. And then he goes on and he says, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is an incredibly complicated little bit. Uh, people have debated back and forth, what does he mean by prince of the power of the air? It's not a question of who does he mean. Everybody acknowledges that he's referring to Satan. But why does he use this language? Why does he use this terminology? Nobody really knows. But, but the understood agreement here is that when Paul describes us and sort of our condition, he says, you're dead in your sins, not decent in need of being made a little bit better. You're walking in step with an evil age, and he says that you're following a prince of the power of the air. You're following Satan. Now, I, I don't think that this is, this is a conscious thing on the part of most people. Like, sure, there is a church of Satan that exists in the world. It has very few members by comparison to most of human history. But, but what Paul is saying here is that in our natural state, as we find ourselves, we are dead we are out of step with the kingdom of God and we have thrown our lot in with the original rebel against the author of goodness itself. This is where we find ourselves and this is why he can go on to say that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I, I realize that at this point, um, some of you are probably going, I thought this was a sermon about grace and this is just a really depressing sort of rant about the evils of humanity. That's my spiritual gift. I'm good at that. 
but, but, but I'm not just, just doing that because that's sort of my bent. Um, in order for us to understand grace, we have to wrap our minds around this. Grace is not just an attribute of God like love or omniscience or omnipotence. It's not like those things. Grace is God applying all of those things that are true of him to our broken condition. Grace is not a thing in God. Grace is God taking everything that's true of himself and bringing it to bear on our brokenness. It does not exist apart from our brokenness. The, the reason why grace has become cheap in our world and in Christian culture is because we're not willing to admit how bad things are and therefore how significant grace actually is. To, to feel the power of the cure for our fractured state, you have to see how deep the fracture really goes. Paul says you are dead, out of step with the way things ought to be, in rebellion against the author of goodness itself. That is the human condition. And, and it's into this that God's grace meets us. Here's, here's what I'm afraid of, is that many Christians have sort of a, a crutch understanding of the grace of God. Um, if you're like me and you sort of grew up on the uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings mythos, um, there's, there's two scenes that I think can kind of illustrate our confusion and, and maybe some clarity about grace. About grace. Uh, there's a scene at the end of the, of the last Lord of the Rings uh, novel where um, the ring is being carried up this hill and, and it's carried by Frodo, uh, which if you have no idea what I'm talking about, this whole illustration is lost on you. Frodo's a hobbit, obviously. You all know what hobbits are. You probably don't. Um, so he's carrying this ring up the hill and he, he's going to throw it over the edge into this volcano so that it can be destroyed. And, and he recognizes he, his strength fails him. Like he, he can't make it up the hill. And so his friend sort of walks with him as far as he can go and then he sort of picks him up and he carries him the rest of the way. That's very moving. I cried in middle school. But some of us think the grace of God is like this. We, we do as much as we can, and then God steps in and he fills up what is lacking. He carries us the rest of the way. He acknowledges, he gave it the old college try, and here's my grace to sort of fill up what's lacking. But this is, this is not the Bible's picture of the grace of God. A better picture comes before that scene. When all of the hope for uh, evil being thwarted has been sort of quarantined to this castle called Helm's Deep. There's nowhere for them to run. They're surrounded on all sides by enemies. There is no hope of escape. All that awaits sort of the heroes of our story is utter destruction unless someone from outside of themselves comes in and does something about it. Uh-oh. We're not in a Sam and Frodo Mount Doom scene. We're in a Helm's Deep scene. We're not decent people in need of being made better with pretty good deeds that almost get us to the top of the mountain. God carries us the rest of the way. We are dead people who must be made alive. But the great picture of our status is Jesus outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And we're Lazarus. We are dead and buried. And from outside of ourselves comes the voice of Christ saying, come forth. That is the grace of God breaking into our circumstances. That's what makes it so beautiful. Because there was nothing that we did to warrant it. 
There was nothing that we could have done that God adds to. We bring nothing to this equation. Notice what it is that that moves God here to respond in grace in the cross and the death and the resurrection. He says in in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is it that moves God to extend his grace? It is his profound love for us. And as Paul sort of reflects on this, he he stops for a second. It's almost as if he's astonished about what he's actually saying. He says, God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. Some, Some of you really need to be able to wrap your mind around this. Paul says, even when you were dead, God loved you with such a great love. Listen, God did not begin to love you the moment that you began the Christian life. God loved you while you were still his enemy. God didn't begin to love you once you started to get things together. God loved you when you were in outward rebellion against him. God does not love you simply as you are. God loves you in spite of who you are, and that's a more profound statement. So often we say to people, I love you just as you are, and what we really mean by that is I love you just as you are because who you are affords me something that makes me feel better about myself, that gives me a happier life, that gives me the sort of future I want. So please don't change because it would mess up the way that your relationship with me benefits me. But if God loves us in spite of who we are, God doesn't love us for anything that we bring to the table. He simply loves us. And that is a deep and abiding love that can't be shaken by our own stupidity. Truthfully, um, some, some of us will struggle with this because we know that this isn't how the world works. Like you don't get something for nothing. Grace doesn't get you into college. Grace doesn't get you into grad school. It, it doesn't pass your, uh, your exams, right? You, uh, you don't get that great job Uh, Because your potential future employer loves you unconditionally. You have to do things to warrant that. And so we'll, we'll, we'll struggle with this because it's not the way that the world is. But I'll tell you that if the gospel is right, it is the way that the world will be. And so we have to learn to live in accordance with that. Some of us desperately need to hear this. Having been formed and shaped by a world that only offers its love and its grace towards us when we've done something to warrant it, we need to hear the fact that God offers it to us in spite of ourselves. That's what makes it so profound, that it is grace alone that saves us, not our works. The words of Martin Luther are worth quoting here. Uh, he, he says this as he's reflecting on the love of God. He says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is lovely to it. It's not as though the love of God looks down into the world and says, this is all exactly how I want it to be. But rather the love of God looks into the world and says, I will make it new in my grace. That grace is costly. That, that grace comes the expense of the death of the Son of God. 
And yet it is only through death and resurrection that the dead, wayward sons of Adam and daughters of Eve can be made alive again. And all of this comes to us by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, um, we come to this equation bringing nothing. Even our prayer, even our approach of you is a grace. We do not deserve this, this time right now that we're inhabiting. But you've offered it to us because of your great love for us. You've made us alive in Christ Jesus out of grace. God, I pray that we would be a people who do not view grace as a cheap thing, as an insignificant thing, but as something that is costly. That your grace would solicit our awe, our reverence, our joy, our gratitude, and not simply our indifference. Lord, that you would make us a people who are graceful towards others, knowing that we have done nothing to warrant the grace in which we currently stand. Lord, we ask that you do all these things by your spirit in the name of Jesus, and we say amen.